Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. And get my daily Red Box email plus access to the entire Times and Sunday Times online for just £1 a week for the first eight weeks. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box and thank you to everyone who got in touch about last week's episode when we dared to talk about things other than brexit including poverty war and chris grayling this week i want to pose two questions can we trust the polls and do you feel politically homeless not directly linked to brexit but not unconnected either in part two we'll speak to two people one labour one conservative who've quit their parties and now don't know who to vote for but first what are the polls telling us is support growing for a second referendum are the tories ahead of labour or not and why have i never been polled joining me in the studio is deborah madison an advisor to new labour who became gordon brown's chief pollster before setting up her own research firm britain thinks and on the line from edinburgh sir john curtis professor of politics at the university of strathclyde and senior research fellow at natsen social research and basically that polling guru off the telly who always seems to get the exit poll right on election night welcome to you both but let's start with brexit and let's start with you john we keep being told by people who want a second referendum the support for one is growing is that right the honest answer to that question is that we don't know and we don't know for a very simple reason and that is that to the best of my knowledge nobody in the last two or three months has asked a question about whether or not there should be a second referendum that was worded in the same way uh, as any poll conducted six or eight or nine months ago. One of the remarkable characteristics of polling in this area has been the extent to which the wording has been changed from poll to poll. What we can say, however, is that at present, whether or not there is a, a plurality of people in favour of a second referendum, definitely does depend on how you ask the question. And basically, the Heinz variety of uh, many poll questions can be divided <laughs> in most cases into one of two types. Uh, the first is uh, those polls that say, should there be a people's vote? Should there be a public vote? Should the public have the final say? Using the language that's being used by the People's Vote campaign for quite good reasons. But secondly, also, these uh, poll questions don't make it clear that remain would be one of the options on the ballot paper, which, according to my understanding, is what the People's Vote campaign want. They just simply say, for example, should there be a referendum on whether or not we accept or reject Mrs. May's deal? Now, questions of that type, on our, all of them, virtually all of them, find more people in favour of a second referendum than against, and on average, the, the majority is around 10 percentage points or so. However, there's another category, and there are quite a lot of them, <laughs> of polls which ask people, should we have another referendum? They don't talk about people's vote. They, they talk about having another referendum. And they make it clear that remain would be one of the options on the ballot paper. Now, if you ask it that way, what you discover is typically there are more people who are opposed to the idea than are in favour. And again, typically the majority here is also around 10 percentage points or so. 
That said, one thing is absolutely clear. It doesn't matter how you ask the question. A second EU referendum, not surprising given the way in which it's promoted, is essentially a Remainer project. Around two-thirds of those who voted Remain are in favour, more or less irrespective of how you ask the question. Leave voters, however, are for the most part against. But if you use that language of a people's vote and you don't make it clear Remain's on the ballot paper, you will get rather more Leave voters to back the idea than if you make it clear that it's a referendum about remaining or leaving. Uh, this is essentially a project that appeals to those who voted Remain and has little uh, uh, attraction for those who voted Leave. Deborah, one of the things that we sort of, the way we look at polls and sort of try, slightly treat them as science and it's, you know, it's all proper because it's numbers and it's it's been done properly. It, it's interesting the impact that the, the, the question that you ask yeah. has. And obviously because if the people's vote are paying a polling firm to ask the questions, they make sure they ask questions to basically get the result they want. Yes, and and obviously you can you can impact the result by the way you ask the questions and, and what John says is absolutely right. Unless you're repeating the same question in exactly the same way over a period of time, you actually have no idea whether things have changed or not. What I would say is that I think the People's Vote campaign have been successful in putting this thing on the map. And it does seem to be that however you ask the question, you get... I think you, you talked about a plurality, John, which is a kind of... You know, it's not actually a majority. Well, that, that, but, that's silly because virtually, yeah. virtually none of these polls do you get 50% of people either in favour or it, it, against. Exactly, and it's really important to flag that too, so it isn't actually a majority. I think the other thing I would say is this is one of those areas, and there are many in this in this sort of tortured field, where qualitative research and focus groups are incredibly helpful. Because what we find with the with the focus groups and qualitative work that we've done in this area, actually people often at first sight are quite enthusiastic about the idea of a people's vote, people having their say and so on. But as soon as you explore it in any detail at all, <laughs> they start to see that there might be some problems here and they start to get a little bit concerned. They get very, you know, the devil is in the detail, as it always is with these things. So they get worried about what the outcome might mean and what would you do, say, if it was flipped around and you've got 52 uh, and 48 the other way around, then what? And how would people feel about that? And they get very worried about the impact on the divided country that we're now all living in that people are incredibly concerned about. So, you know, yeah, as soon as you explore in more detail, there are more problems. That, I mean, I think that's entirely fair comment. And I certainly think the idea of holding a second EU referendum as a way of achieving a resolution with which everybody's going to be happy is impossible. That said, however, I think the truth <laughs> is the same objection can be made to pretty much any proposal that you can put forward at the moment. It's not clear, sorry, certainly for example, leaving on Mrs. May's deal is, uh, or anything that will be tougher there, there than that would undoubtedly is going to be divisive. And frankly, even the kind of soft Brexit option of, you know, uh, Norway or whatever, again, it's not entirely clear that going down this path would somehow or another magically bring the, the country together. So I think it's a perfectly reasonable right. to say that the second EU referendum uh, m may indeed exacerbate existing divisions, but that could well be true of pretty much whatever I, we do to, I, I, to think do that, I think that's right. And then to sort of layer on the pain, what we also <laughs> find is that is that people are not paying attention anymore. You know, if we ask people what they feel about Brexit, often their reference point will go right back to the referendum campaign because a lot of them have switched off in the meantime. We asked people in focus groups a couple of weeks ago to place themselves on a scale of 0 to 10 on how much they felt they knew about the deal that's currently being debated, where 0 was nothing at all and 10 was as much as you could reasonably know. And in the focus groups, we found typically 7 out of 10 placed themselves at 0. 
Wow. Literally felt yeah, that they I had did, I, no knowledge at all. It's possible that yeah, they, they were the people who worked in Westminster. <laughs> I mean, equally again in the quantitative data, you know, two and a half months on, you still get 30% of people saying, I don't know whether I support or oppose Mrs. May's deal. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and both, they don't know what's in it. And they uh, certainly don't want Norway means or any of that. And I suppose in, right. in a way, maybe, maybe my first question was wrong about support for a second referendum. We should wind it back further. And polls such as they are, suggest that there's been almost no movement in where people were in June 2016. There hasn't been a big shift of leavers who got regret or whatever you call it, and there hasn't been a big shift in Remainers who now think, well, we should just get on with it. People seem very entrenched. Is that your take, John? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, people are, are are entrenched. But that doesn't mean to say that the balance of opinion hasn't, hasn't tilted somewhat. So, uh, for the most part, most people say they do the same thing. On average, if you take all the recent polls, the last dozen or so polls that have asked this question, 87% of those who voted remain say they do the same thing again. 83% of Leave voters say they do the same thing again. So it's a, the Leave vote's a little bit softer, but not dramatically so. And given that you know, other research that I and others have done suggests that around two in you might think that people have switched off, but people are also feel very strongly about this subject. Around two mm. in five people say they are either a very strong Remainer or a very strong Lever. They're not inclined to change their mind. They're looking at the Brexit debate through the prism of a very strong existing commitment. But there is one group of people whose views are now somewhat different from what they were two and a half years ago. And it seems to be that it's their views that's responsible for the fact that virtually every opinion poll, for what it's worth, tends to show a relatively narrow lead for Remain at the moment. It's around Remain 54, lead 46. And that's those people who did not vote two and a half years ago. They now, in all the polls, are clearly more pro-Remain than pro-Leave, the order of in more than two to one or so. And the data I've got where I've been kind of tracking the views of this group over time, they've all, they were always somewhat more pro-Remain, not surprising because they're disproportionately younger people. But it looks as though this is the one group that during the course of the Brexit process, to some degree, do seem to have shifted their stance such as they ever had one. So it's not so much a case of regret or people changing their minds, but rather a rather important section of our society making up their minds rather late in the day. But, it, <laughs> but it's because we do have that balance of support in favor, apparently in favour of Remain, but immediately anybody who knows anything about polls will say, but, you know, be careful. Once the polls are showing you this close, nobody can be sure. But it certainly yeah. does look as though that because of the views that didn't vote to me years ago, we do seem to be a little more pro-Remain. But of course, if we therefore were to have another referendum, the crucial question would be, would these people turn out and would they turn out and vote Remain and would that tilt the balance? And inevitably, that's bound to be a very uncertain prospect. Because they didn't turn out last time and that's usually the best guide. I know it didn't work very well in the last general election, but generally speaking, you know, if you, if you didn't vote last time, you probably won't vote next time. Just before we move on to uh, party politics, in your focus groups, Deborah, there's loads of fascinating stuff in the report that um, yes. came out last week, asking people if Brexit were an animal, what would it be? A bull in a china shop, a sheep, because we're following and not making any decisions. My favourite was a fish opening its <laughs> mouth, nothing coming out and forgetting what they said yesterday. But then you also asked people to um, to draw a map of the world, which included the yes. UK, which sounds like a weird thing to ask a focus group to do. Yeah, it's actually, I this kind of, people's perceptions of geography are important because they tell you much more than how little they know about geography and they don't know very much. As you've seen, if you looked at the maps, they're on our website if anyone's 
interested. But, but basically, there are a number of quite important and telling things that came out of these maps that we got people to draw. Um, none of the maps featured Ireland. Uh, so, you know, hello. Which is good, nobody's been talking yeah. about that at all. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Um, basically, people often drew, well, always actually drew the UK much larger than it actually is and sort of very much centre stage, with Europe down in the sidelines and often people would just draw France and Germany and didn't really put anything else on for Europe. And then I think the other really telling thing is that they depicted the UK as being geographically very close to the US and actually quite close to Russia as well. Russia kind of, you know, uh, beaming down on us. Um, so the UK squeezed between these two giant lumps of land is how people see, with Europe sort of off down to the bottom somewhere. Where is Australia on, on your maps? Uh, Australia didn't feature on most <laughs> of the maps, I have to oh, say. Right. Even it's, though, all right, it's all right, because those trade deals are going to come flooding in any time. Yeah, anytime, yeah, anytime completely, well, completely say, Psychologically, I often argue that you have to remember that for many people... Australia is next door and France and Germany is, is halfway around the world. Because Actually, there is one. It, it, it's, it, it's the question of the fact that we have this common linguistic and cultural diaspora that with much of the, uh, the Commonwealth that kind of helps to explain why for the UK, Europe perhaps is not such a central project with which we feel culturally comfortable in the way that it does tend to be for, mo for most other members of the European Union. There is definitely a circle with what it could be, it could say Oz or it could say the O2. It's difficult to circle on one it of those. It is Oz. Um, let's move on then quickly and talk about this issue about political parties. Are the Tories ahead in the polls? A big row uh, erupted a week or so ago. Diane Abbott was on Question Time. She said that the Tories weren't ahead in the polls and that Labour were ahead. And then she got into a bit of a spat with Fiona Bruce and the Labour Party sort of weaponised it in the way that it does. John, what's, what's, what's the truth? What's going on in the, in, the, in the opinion polls? Well, the answer is that there's, there's, there's some variation. Uh, the poll that was quoted by Fiona Bruce was from YouGov and YouGov have been tending to show uh, the Conservatives' head more recently. But there are plenty of other polls out there that either have Labour Party ahead to some degree or, in some cases, pretty close. And if you take the average of the opinion polls, we're pretty much close uh, to neck and neck, yeah, which does, to my mind, raise an important point, which is that, you know, if indeed we were to have an opinion, a, a general election tomorrow, and if indeed uh, very little happened during the election campaign, unlike in 2017, Probably the best bet is that we would end up with a hung parliament. Mm. Yay! Um, that'll sort everything <laughs> out. Uh, the, the, both the Conservatives and the Labour Party might have greater difficulty in forming the administration than Mrs May had in June 2017. And that therefore, certainly, uh, we have to bear in mind that if we were to have a, have a general election, it won't necessarily give an answer to the question about what we want to do with Brexit. And again, I think partly, you know, th this is... Under I mean, given in, in so far as... You know, around 70% of the Conservative vote consists of those who voted Leave. Around 70% of the Labour vote consists these days of those who voted Remain. And that, you know, if people are unhappy with the way in which the Conservative government is handling Brexit, uh, but they voted Leave, they're not exactly likely to jump to the Labour Party as the answer to their frustration. It probably would be in any general election that focused on Brexit would be difficult for either the Conservatives or the Labour Party to get very far ahead. And we do have to remember, despite the weakness of the Democrats, most of Scotland is currently out of play so far as Conservative mm. Labour is concerned, unlikely looks to remain so. Northern Ireland is out of play. We still have fewer marginal seats than we once did. Ergo, 
the chances that we get a, a hung parliament are relatively high. And at some point, our politicians do need to fix themselves. Why is it we've had three general elections in a row, none of which have produced a safe, stable majority for any one party? And that it may be finally time for our politicians to realise that first past the post doesn't quite work in the way that they assume that it does, and that it's no longer the instrument that will necessarily provide either Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May with the glorious large majority that, that either of them would hope for. One variable in this, though, John, I, I agree with everything you've said. However, one thing we do know is that Theresa May, unless something astonishing happens in the next few weeks, Theresa May is not going to lead the Tory party into the next election. Whereas, again, unless something that we can't predict happens, Jeremy Corbyn will lead Labour. And I think that's one thing that might sort of tip the balance one way one way or the other. One of the things that struck me over the past few weeks and months, all the turmoil in Westminster politics seems to have damaged Jeremy Corbyn's poll ratings more than and Theresa this, May's. I mean, this in, comes so clearly through the work yeah, that we've so just yours done. Is, yours, uh, Deborah, we've got. Do you agree on, on the issue of Brexit? Which politician is more concerned about politics, part, party politics, than playing the national party interest? politics rather than national interest? Yeah, and exactly. Je- Jeremy Corbyn comes out at sixty-nine percent. Yep. Theresa May forty-five. Yep. And we had a piece yep. on Red Box last week where someone had gone through all the YouGov, you know, who would make the best prime minister. And Jeremy Corbyn's gone down in every yep. size, whether it's age group, class, uh, previous Labour voters, Remain voters, yep. uh, sort of across the. How is that happening? Theresa May yep. is not making a decent fist of politics yeah. at the moment. Yeah, it, Jeremy Corbyn seems to be bearing the brunt of it. it. It's so interesting and he was, I think he was really insulated from the whole Brexit debate for ages. It just didn't impact on his reputation at all. He wasn't being judged by Brexit in a way that she obviously was. I mean, she was, it was all about Brexit, nothing else for her. Um, and that has shifted really subtly, I think, um, in, in recent weeks and months. And to the point where people are very concerned that, uh, you know, that he is he's being driven entirely by by party politics. They they want to see politics. I mean, they're despairing of all politicians. Um, I know we're going to talk about that later, but they, they want to see them acting in the national interest. And they're utterly bemused. Two points to make. One is, I think it's long been the case that the public have been doubtful about Jeremy Corbyn's yes. qualities as a politician. But on the other hand, they tend to admire his style as a campaigner. Uh, The trouble is that the memory of the 2017 election is now a rather weak one, uh, and his qualities as a politician have come back to the fore, and he's therefore lost most of the gains that he made in the general election. But bear in mind, he might, in another election campaign, uh, manage to campaign effectively once again. Uh, Theresa May, I mean, undoubtedly, she's always coming out ahead of Corbyn. That said, you know, we are now sometimes finding polls where, frankly, the people say neither oh, of the two. All the time. Is the best. Well, I mean, and, don't and we, know wins, right? <laughs> exactly. And we, 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 you know, one of the things certainly on which to observe, simply as an impartial observation, is that a time when this country is having to execute one of the most important decisions it's made since 1945, it is led by two politicians who seem to struggle to cut it both with their colleagues in Parliament mm. and general public and that that therefore obviously in part helps to uh, explain why some people now think that the situation we're currently in is something of a political crisis it's not just the substance it's also the men and women who are trying to deal with the substance who seem to be lacking 
final question before we move on. When people say, whenever I tweet any link to a poll, somebody says, well, I've never been asked about a poll. How can we trust polls? Uh, they're all biased in favour of one side or another. John, what's your answer to that? Well, they're not all biased, but equally, of course, they certainly, we certainly all know they're not perfect. I mean, the, 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 you know, the basic theory of, of, of polling is based on the theory of random sampling, and it's essentially said that you know, if you interview a thousand people at random, then you know, 95 times out of 100, you'll get the result roughly right. Now, in practice, it's rather more complicated than that. Uh, certainly, I think the lesson from the last EU referendum is that if the polls tell you it's close, you therefore you don't know who's going to win. And I think we're still mm. largely in, in that situation. <laughs> um, the one thing that pollsters above all are trying to do is to get it right. Their reputation rests on calling it right and not on telling whoever might be their clients what they would like to hear. And so at the end of the day, yes, pollsters... Which can make you unpopular with your clients, in my experience, (laughs) but hey. (laughs) Okay, still to come, can we trust any political party to represent us? And do you feel politically homeless? We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Still in the studio is Deborah Mattinson, Gordon Brown's former pollster and founder of Britain Thinks. And we've been joined by Jane Merrick, regular columnist of the Red Box Daily Email, who last July wrote for us about her decision to quit the Labour Party because, in her words, remaining a member of Corbyn's Labour Party would be tolerating anti-Semitism. Also here is Nick Matsey, who was on the Tory candidate shortlist for the 2017 election, but last week wrote a piece for Red Box on why he was quitting the party, declaring the Conservatives are no longer a party of pragmatism, of science, of the economy, of opportunity. They are now the party of ideology, of liars and cheats. Which is quite okay. So, uh, why do they do it, and where do they go, and how many other people uh, feel the same? Let's start. Let's start with you, Jane, because let's wind the clock back to July when anti-Semitism was such a massive thing, and it's fallen out of the headlines, even though it shouldn't have done, because it's still a massive problem, um, as far as I can tell. But what drove you to do it, and I suppose what was the reaction to it when you when you quit the Labour Party? I voted Labour all my life. Um, from 19, 1992 election was my first election. And my, I grew up in a Labour family in Liverpool. It was a very sort of, you know, daughter of teachers, a very kind of public services, a great... Very, Labour was a natural party to vote for. Um, I joined the Labour Party in 2016. I sort of have a belief that journalists shouldn't be members of political parties. But at that point, I wanted to vote for Angela Eagle for leader. So I joined the Labour Party then. But it, it is true to say that, you know, my inclination has been with Labour all, all my life. Um, and then I think it just got, a, you know... It's not like I was suddenly surprised last summer that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't the kind of leader I thought he should be. I've always had reservations about him. But I think the anti-Semitism issue just came to a point. And actually, it wasn't just anti-Semitism, but that was the sort of the key thing for me, because the way that he treated Margaret Hodge, the way that Margaret Hodge was treated by the party. um, But also on things like Russia, I think his instincts on foreign affairs, for me, are very disconcerting on defence and all of that. And it just I couldn't, couldn't reconcile that. And at the the 2017 election, Harriet Harman is my local MP. I was happy to vote for her because I could sort of reconcile with myself that I was, you know, voting for a really good, strong constituency MP. But I think it comes to a point where you can no longer support the party and the popular vote. You have to take a decision and and to to leave. And what sort of reaction did you get? Um, It was very uh, split. I mean, the sort of the... the, It was probably... I've had a tough time on Twitter in terms of reaction from what, whatever I've said for the last 10 years, but this was sort of the most extreme. I mean, you know, it was just real, you know, abuse. I wasn't, wasn't really Labour anyway. That's because I was sort of a metropolitan journalist. I didn't really understand Labour values, which is just nonsense because of, you know, my background and, 
and how I voted all my life. And just, yeah, like real abuse. I mean, sort of, you know, I had emails to my, my personal email address with pretty threatening stuff. Just really, really nasty stuff. I mean, it was just, it was and awful. Fact, I, but- I remember, because having seen the response when the Red Box account was tweeting it out, the sort of, the pile-on of Corbynistas was... Yes, was pretty extreme. But, but on the other hand, I had uh, so much support. I mean, not just in sort of you know people in the Jewish community, but also just general support of saying you know um you know well done for saying this and for sort of drawing a line in the sand. Um, but also I had sort of people who I would consider friends who are in Labour who said, well actually I agree with you, but I'm not, but I'm not going to leave. I think that you know we should stay and fight. We should stay and fight for the party that we have been in all our lives and I, it was that was you know it was always a dilemma for me but it was it just came to a point in July. So Nick just describe what happened to you last week um, you'd written for Redbox previously about your frustrations with the Tory party yes. but just explain you you were actually far more sort of embedded in the party than than Jane was. Yes um, I mean it's been my, been my dream really my whole life to be an MP it was something I've always wanted to do and I can't say I was, I've been a lifelong Tory voter. I'm from Somerset, so I was, first of all, a Lib Dem voter. And then I once voted for Tony Blair. And then as I grew up and got older and moved around the world and joined the army and, and, and experienced new things, I became very much a Conservative voter um, and a member of the party. And, and that was the direction I, I wanted to go. And that was, that was the dream ever since I, I left the army because I specifically wanted to get into politics and become an MP with the Conservative Party. So that was a, a, a dream that I held for a long time. I arrived in 2014. I was straight down in West London, even though I lived in North London, to canvas for uh, Angie Bray and spent every single weekend down there, most bank holidays. And uh, I had a lovely time with the party down there. I met some really good people and, and some great friends. But that's not the party that I remember anymore. Now the party is dominated by Brexit completely. It's shifted the agenda in ways I couldn't possibly imagine. People I once thought were sensible, uh, had genuinely liberal... I think about Tim Montgomery is a really good example. Tim Montgomery used to write in The Times. He used to host the previous yeah, podcast. He did, And I remember we used to read him and I used to look forward to his stuff in The Times and I'd go, oh, you know, this is great. You know, some really good, sensible policies that will improve people's lives. Brexit came along, mentioned the European Union... I, I don't know what happens to people. They lose. They lose the plot, and uh, they they are, they turn into people, which is driven by. And I mentioned this ideology. There's no conversation. There's no discussion. There's no logic or facts. It's a religion to them, and that religion is leave. And you're on side, or you're not. And I find this in Westminster. If I'm trying to speak to politicians, they're sort of opening. You can tell that they're trying to size up. Are you on their team or not? Yeah. In a way that previously dealing with a Labour politician or a Tory politician talking about politics was just part of yeah. your job. But you know the fact that I work for the Times and it's you know the Times back remain is like a a mark against me before I can even have that sort of opening conversation with some Brexit. Yeah. Is that true in sort of Tory membership? Yes. Are members the same? Yes. Uh, we uh, we. You go to your parties with your mates and, and you're very good friends and I'm sure Jane's had the same experience. You become very close to these people. You spend a lot of time with them, knocking on doors and you know, going down and hanging out with them, talking about these things that you're passionate about. And the conversation is straight there, straight into Brexit, straight straight where you're standing. And there is a, there is a divide. Now, if you're very close friends, you can overcome it. And I, I have friends who voted Brexit. They, they, they voted Brexit for sensible reasons I can understand. I don't really agree with them, but I can understand them. But even those ones, most of them are saying, why would we leave the single market in the customs union? And and they're seeing the Conservative Party becoming anti-trade. One of them said, when did we become anti-trade? 
And so what happened last week when you wrote your piece, which ended up, it has been one of the most, the, yep. one of the best red, red box pieces we've had for a long time, if, if not ever. Yep. Um, I made the mistake of tweeting it. <laughs> you did. <laughs> and Thanks for that. I'm still getting notifications had, yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's been retweeted thousands and thousands of times yep. and seen by hundreds of thousands of people. Yep. Um, what, what was the reaction that you... I mean, I saw some of the reaction on Twitter, but what, what, what's been the reaction that you've so had? My, so my experience has been very different to Jane's, actually. I have not received the vitriol from people like Jane has. I've had a number of leavers and probably UKIPers and saying, glad to see the back of me. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. But they're a relatively small number, actually. Uh, what I have felt is an overwhelming sense of sadness from people. They've read it and it's really resonated with them. So all the people that Jane, actually, I think you probably read it and gone, that's exactly how I felt about Labour, where they go, There's, where, where do I go? This is so frustrating. These, these people are ideological. They don't, this isn't about what politics needs to be to solve today's problems. The Conservatives I'm, I, I'm, I'm friendly with and, and the people I see, I saw a, I saw a 40 year member, an association chairman, a councillor. I had uh, a young lady who must be early 20s who I know um, who's a candidate and she's a councillor and she said to me, I don't know what to do sometimes. I'm turning up and I don't believe this anymore. This is the wrong direction. So many people reaching out and saying, this is how I feel. I'm really glad you've spoken out and, and said it. I had no idea. I, I totally expected a few people to go, <laughs> yeah, that's great. I've had a few accusations of self-publicity. Um, Okay, fine. I mean, I, I suppose I'm not sure exactly which but way that's you think i That's playing the man. Not the, I mean, if you want to sell publicity to, what, become an MP, you might not have torn well, up... Well, I've, I've ruined college. any chances now yeah, of being exactly. a, a Conservative MP, although, you know, Churchill switched, switched back and forth a few times, although possibly not a good idea to talk about him right now. Compare yourself. Yeah, no, quite <laughs> Not that I would compare myself. So, Deborah, there were lots of people, I, I suspect, who, whether or not they're full paid up members or not but we'll listen to Jane and Nick's story and think, you know, that's where I am. I, I, you know, if were there to be a general election... I don't know who I'd vote for. Is that your experience from the work that you do? Yes and no. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things is that um, despite the fact that there is, in a sense, a feeling of a plague on all your houses, that voters are, are in despair. In fact, they're quite angry with politicians. They feel that they're focused on the wrong things. They're not focused on the things that affect their lives. I'm hearing people complaining about things I haven't heard them complain about since the mid-90s, like, you know, rising class sizes, crime housing, homelessness, they feel that, that, that nobody is, is focused. And yet, at the same time, both of the main parties are polling around the 40% mark, which, you know, during some of the years that I was advising Labour, we would have died to be uh, <laughs> getting 40%. And you would have won an election easily with 40%. So it is quite interesting that at the same time, those views seem quite polarised. So people are very negative, And yet, in polls, are still saying they would vote Labour or they would vote Tory in fairly equal numbers. And in the event of a general election, do you think... one of the things we saw in 2017 was turnout went mm. up. And actually, are people getting more sort of politically engaged? Do they end up going out and voting? Because if you're sort of Tory, maybe you go out and vote because you don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister as well, you know, or vice versa. It might be very negative, pessimistic politics, but yeah. does that still drive people out to vote? Yeah, I mean, typically you get a better turnout when you have a very close um, mm. result anyway. So, you know, that's going to kind of galvanise people at the extremes. And what we also saw was that in the not in the last referendum but in the last election Jeremy Corbyn was very successful um, unexpectedly so in getting young people to turn out whether or not you know he manages to do that again I think remains to be seen 
are people more engaged with politics? No, I'd say they're less engaged with politics. I mean, I'm, I mean, mainly what I'm doing focus groups on at the moment is, of course, Brexit. But I'm literally hearing people saying, you know what, when, when it comes on the telly, I'd literally get up and switch off. I cannot bear it. <laughs> oh, I just don't listen me. to it. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> really, you know, people are very disengaged. People are, you know, not picking up on the detail. And actually, they're despairing. So I suppose one of the things that really strikes me is that actually, Jane and Nick, you've got more in common than sort of divides you. It actually is So is what's happened, that the centre ground that used to be there, that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and David Cameron and Nick Clegg were scrapping over, has been completely vacated by the two main parties. The Lib Dems are, I'm sure, still trying to find the key to the cupboard that they appear to be locked in, and at some point they will burst out and tell us what, you know, and they'll seize that moment. But it does seem amazing that... It, in the past, the problem, supposedly, was that it was everyone was the same and they were all fighting over the main centre ground. And yet there's nobody there now. And that's basically where, where the both of you are. Yeah, I mean, I think that voters, sort of the broad sweep of voters, haven't changed their minds about they want a sensible prime minister in place. They don't want somebody to kind of start imposing 70% tax rates. Not that Jeremy Corbyn's talking about that. But, you know, I think there's, sort of, there are, there's a huge amount of moderate thinking voters who would have voted for Tony Blair in '97 voted for David Cameron in 2010. I think they're still there. But the problem is that that kind of that narrative was overtaken by things like populism. And I think the mistake is to say that, oh, well, to answer populism, to answer right wing populism, we must have a, a sort of a far left response when actually the kind of the the that sort of moderate centre is still there. And I think there is still still a, a constituency there that's really important and that people's people. I think I wrote this for the piece this week for Redbox there are people who are still angry, but they, they remain in the centre and they, they remain moderate, but they're still angry about politics. It's just that they're not being heard because they're not putting on yellow vests and shouting on Twitter, but they're still angry about politics. They still want things to change. And I think the political response should be politicians saying, right, well, we do listen to the moderate things. It doesn't have to be left, extreme left or extreme right. We do still have answers for people across the country who are moderate. I think it's the membership as well has really driven this change of agenda. So we saw it very heavily with with what happened with Jeremy Corbyn. He came through and all of a sudden the membership of the Labour Party put this man in and then the Labour Party was was swollen, full of people that you probably wouldn't have wanted before. Um, People from the Communist Party, people from the Socialist Workers' Party. Mm. And in response, the Conservative Party, uh, and you've had hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people join Labour. The Conservative Party is only about 124,000 members. They were really worried it was under 100,000 at one point. They're now expecting it to reach 200,000. Now, that membership is not people from London, the, the, sort of what I would call myself a, a small-c Conservative. These are people that are coming over from UKIP and they're coming from what used to be the BNP because they've got nowhere else to go and they're driving the agenda with Mm. with the MPs and those MPs who were formerly on the wings and complete lunatics in the ERG are now centre stage getting all of the attention in the media. Mm. Normally one of the parties is sensible and you know, got a sensible leader and, uh, you know, on the centre ground, while the other one has gone a bit mad and then they get that sort of out of their system. So the Labour Party had that problem in the 80s and Margaret Thatcher, you know, reached right across politics and won big majority. Tony Blair did the same thing while the Tories went off and had William Hague and Michael Howard. We seem to be in a position where both parties have been captured by their extreme mm. wing and nobody really seems to know what to do about it and that maybe that's why the polls are showing that it's a sort of stalemate because I think, yeah, I think the parties are based on 
uh, a way of doing things in the past that don't exist anymore. So if we take Trump and Hillary as a really good example to use, they were obsessed with job losses and, and Trump was saying this is all about Mexican immigrants mm. and, and they're taking all your jobs. That's, that's not true. They were going to automation. Neither one of them mentioned it. Yeah. So you've got two parties now completely obsessed with solutions from the 70s and 80s. Mm. If we think about the issues that we're coming up with the EU and the leaving, people are obsessed with saying, well, why on earth would we no longer get food from Europe? Well, because they don't understand the concept of just-in-time supply chains. They worry about tariffs. They don't worry about standards. They don't worry about logistics. The world has progressed so fast that these two parties are not geared up to manage the modern problems of automation, technology, digitization. Look at the issues around Facebook and Twitter and they just can't cope. So they're looking to the old problems to really energise people and they're coming up with absolutely nothing new to represent people. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually it's not just Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, but it's David Cameron. It's the response to, they got scared by the financial crash in 2008, they got scared by the expenses scandal, they got scared by immigration. And instead of looking at those challenges and saying, how do we respond in a sensible way, they, appe- they sort of appease this, this sort mm. of real nasty underbelly about immigration instead mm. of saying there are wonderful things about immigration. I mean, where were the positive arguments for immigration during the referendum campaign? And I think that's, a sort of, that's where we are, why we are here today. It's because it's the wrong response to populism. And I suppose it, but you go all around the houses on the palms with the other parties, but dare I mention the idea of a new political party? Yeah, I mean, you know, at, at face value, I think there would be some support because what I hear from a lot of people in focus groups and anecdotally, like, like the two people here, is that they feel homeless, that they, they're looking for something that isn't present in mainstream politics. And yet, and yet, it's just quite hard to see how that fits with our electoral system. Um, and, and it needs leadership and it needs somebody who's going to step forward and say, I am that person. And I'm not seeing that happening anywhere. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there would be an appetite in theory, but in practice it's quite hard to see how it would work. Jane, what do you think about the idea of a new party? It keeps being talked about, um, you know, quite often it's, it seems to come from that sort of Blairite wing of the Labour Party. Do you think it's viable at all? I think it's definitely viable. I think there are, there are possible problems with it. Um, but there is definitely a sort of, a, I think, a lot of people, not just voters, but people in politics who would want to coalesce around something in the centre. I think the problem is, is that can you marry centre-left with centre-right and where the dividing lines are? I mean, for me, it's about history. You know, from a labor, from a centre-left point of view, let's call it, my um, sort of... From a centre-left point of view, I would say that austerity went too far and actually that you didn't need to sort of... You know, the whole my whole basis of politics is that the new Labour government, when it came in in 97, it needed to spend money on the public services that had been destroyed by the Tory governments. I think Nick would probably disagree with me on that. And I think how do you sort of move forward and say, can we agree on fiscal discipline? You know, fiscal discipline to a centre-right Tory is different to fiscal discipline to a centre-left ex-Labour person. And I think that's where the dividing line might be. But, but I think we may have more in common than I have with... A Corbynista. And actually, one of the things we saw, Nick, with austerity at post-2010 is that there was a sense, some people might have agreed with the coalition uh, position, that, you know, public spending had to be brought under control and, you know, tackling the deficit and all that, but particularly because it was a Conservative government and the length of time went on, you know, it feeds into this sense that actually this wasn't about carefully balancing the mm. books, this was about the Conservative instinct to shrink the state. Well, I, th- I think there's, there was a lot of logic to that, actually. Um, 
but but quite interesting is that so many conservatives you speak to now they they really did want to shrink the deficit and they're quite angry now at what they're being told that they're going to get a brexit dividend which we know is a lie i mean it's a complete lie to fund the nhs which is we know is being done through through borrowing and actually jane made a really good point about can you know can we bring the center left and center right together on, on fiscal responsibility and in 2015 i'd have said no because we were too we felt too far apart but things have changed now. Let's not forget, in 2015, the biggest argument I had with my Labour friends was whether or not a top-rate tax of 50% or 40% was the right thing. 50% was communist, 40% was, well, I don't know, fascist, clearly. Now, if that's if that's all we've got to disagree on, you know, I'm pretty sure we can close that 45 gap. seems like the obvious. Well, the it does seem like a, a nice, nice place to go. Um, just before we wind up, what, out of 10, what do you think the chances are of a new party emerging out of this wreckage? I think it's pretty... I think it's quite likely there's there's one main reason why politics has not been properly disrupted yet jeremy corbyn did an okay job actually he did disrupt with labor conservative parties haven't disrupted anything in about a billion years but as long as they've been around and as long as jacob rees mogg sort of been around but by definition i mean it's literally in the word in the name conservative. Yeah. <laughs> you're supposed to just leave everything alone precisely which is why brexit hugo rifkin on a live podcast we did last year talked about this about how the problem with brexit with the toys it's so off brand mm. yeah mm. it's throwing everything up in the air and just seeing what happens and set fire. The technology gives you the space to do that now. It, or you, you don't even need a party machine. I and mean, then the concept to me of knocking on doors, handing out leaflets, is so backwards. It, nobody answers the doors anyway. And certainly every time, I'm sure you've done the same, all the leaflets end up in the bins afterwards. <laughs> what they, what you could do... With the you want to come and people, live in the, one of the safest toy stores <laughs> in the country and nobody will be knocking on your door, I can assure you. Just a good message and, and some good thinkers will bring people around and I believe it can be done. I think, I think um, you, I mean, out of 10, I think eight, actually, and I'm quite positive about that. And not because I want to destroy a certain, like the Labour Party, the Conservative Party. I think people, I just want to have a sort of a, an outlet for a progressive politics. And I think what it has to be, if it is going to happen, it's got to be after Brexit, after the, the dust settles, not after Brexit, but the dust settles from us leaving. Um, and I think it's got to be about positivity. It's got to be about hope, and I know that's a cliche, but people are going to have to start... It works, though. It's worked in elections It does work, before. but also it's got to be genuine as well. It can't just be lip service to, I was just going to say the words, hope. It can't just be Theresa May <laughs> on, the, on Downing Street saying, we're going to tackle burning injustices and then not tackle them. Absolutely. It has to be really positive about what are the best things in this country? Where is the, the tolerance and the common ground? I mean, like, let's listen to what the Queen said last week um, and find common ground. And I think we can. And, and as when Nick was talking about... If that all there is between 40% and 50%, as Peggy Lee said, is that all there is? Then let's keep dancing. <laughs> well, on that note, that sounds and, pretty good. And the suggestion of, I don't think that might be the first time that Peggy Lee's ever been uh, quoted on the podcast, and I it's all the better uh, for it. Uh, that, I'm afraid is all we've got time for this week. I hope um, you've enjoyed it. You know, sort, sort of talked about Brexit a little bit, and Nick even mentioned the word tariffs, which is a general rule. Um, I tried to avoid. If you want to read the two pieces that Nick and Jane wrote about quitting the, their respective political parties, we'll tweet them from the Times Red Box Twitter underneath the podcast puff, so you can um, read those. But for now, my huge thanks to John Curtis, Deborah Matteson, Nick Matsey, and Jane Merrick. From me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs>